Take your Bibles this morning and let's go back to where we've been in Luke's gospel in chapter 12. And we could just about descend anywhere into the gospels and Christ would be at the center of all that we study. And so we want to continue in the narrative that we've been in because it is true that as the crowds interact with the Lord Jesus Christ, he addresses them and continues to expose what is in the heart. Sometimes you wonder how could a group of people one week be, be exalting Jesus as he comes into Jerusalem and then next week crying out for his death. Well, it's because in the ministry and life of Jesus, wherever he went, hearts were exposed. And that is no different than we find in our continuing narrative in this great gospel, particularly in chapter 12. Follow along as I begin reading in verse 13 and read through verse 34. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who appointed me a judge or arbitrator over you? And then he said to them, Beware and be on your guard against every form of greed. For not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. And he told them a parable saying the land of a rich man was very productive. And he began reasoning to himself saying, what shall I do since I have no place to store my crops? And then he said, this is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I'll say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night, your soul is required of you. And now who will own what you've prepared? And so is the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. And he said to his disciples, for this reason, I say to you, don't worry about your life as to what you will eat, nor for your body as to what you will put on. For life is more than food and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens, for they neither sow nor reap. They have no storeroom nor barn, and yet God feeds them. And how much more valuable you are than the birds. And which of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to his lifespan? If then you cannot do even a very little thing, why do you worry about other matters? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, but I tell you, not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass in the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, how much more will he clothe you, you men of little faith? And do not seek what you will eat and what you will drink. And do not keep worrying. For all these things the nations of the world eagerly seek. But your Father knows that you need these things. But seek his kingdom. And these things will be added to you. Do not be afraid, little flock. For your Father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to charity. Make yourself money belts which do not wear out, an unfailing treasure in heaven where no thief comes near nor moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And we'll stop there. If you give people enough opportunity to talk, you'll find out soon enough what's most important to them for sure. You want to know what's in someone's heart deep down? Let them talk long enough about themselves and their world and, and what's on the inside just continues to come out. You want to know if someone who names the name of Christ really does focus on Christ, really does have a heart for the things of heaven and the things of Christ? Let them talk long enough. Jesus taught this very principle in the 12th chapter of Matthew, verse 34, for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks... What does a person love most? Well, what do they talk about most often is the highest degree of passion in their life. What does someone believe will be most fulfilling in life? Well, the, whatever consumes that person's time and energy and resources, that is what they believe will be most fulfilling. 
If someone's mind is a moral sewer, then their speech will pour forth foul things. If someone is pure in their heart, they'll pursue a life that promotes those things. Purity and righteousness and what is good. My mentor, John MacArthur, used to say all the time, time and truth go hand in hand. That is to say, given enough time, eventually hearts will be exposed and moreover, the truth will be vindicated. I've entitled today's message, What You Own Soon Owns You. Whenever Jesus taught the multitudes, though he was a master at driving home a point with an illustration, he often didn't need to come up with an illustration because as people asked questions in the crowd, they became the illustration of the whole point. People would blurt out a response to something Jesus taught, and he would use that moment to expose the real issues in that person's heart. And then he would put an exclamation point on the truth. And that is what happened in the text before us. Some guy in the crowd who, it seems, hasn't been sobered at all by anything Jesus has said about facing God and being denied by Christ in front of the holy angels. If you've been with us, you know that's been part of what Jesus has been teaching Apparently, he's not sobered by any of this. And he uses, it seems, a pause in Jesus' teaching, or maybe he even interrupted the Lord. He used the moment to put on the table what's most important to him. Notice verse 13, someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. If you're keeping sort of a structural outline or something for your notes, you might just put down, greed and truth don't mix. Greed and truth do not mix. You could tell immediately that this guy's issue is money. The inheritance. It's an inheritance of which he is either being withheld, it's either being withheld from him unlawfully by his family member, or it could be true that he's just not satisfied with how things came out in, in the ancient probate court. Somehow he is not liking the situation, and the bottom line is he's all about getting what he wants out of the family inheritance and the estate. Now, I don't want you to miss it. When you, when you study the human heart, if you really want to study the human heart, then study not only what someone says, but the context in which they say it. You say, what do you mean? Well, a simple observation of the timing of this question tells us a few things about just how deep this rabbit hole goes in this guy's life. First of all, as I said, he's not been sobered at all by Jesus' rebuke of the Pharisees and their hypocrisy. Back in chapter 11, you remember, beginning in verse 37, Jesus had spoken with these Pharisees, and he had dined with one, and he'd pointed out the hypocrisy, how they clean the outside but not the inside. They don't actually deal with the heart. Ostensibly, this guy in chapter 12 is in the crowd somewhere, or he's hearing the teaching as it spreads through the crowd. He's not been sobered by it at all. Doesn't see himself as a hypocrite, doesn't see himself in the issue. Moreover, he's not phased when later Jesus says, you should fear him who can kill both the body and soul in hell. You remember that discussion early in chapter 12 where he says you need to fear God, not human beings, not what humans can do to you. They can only do things to the body. They can't do anything else, and eternity is what really matters. This guy doesn't seem phased at all by that. And he doesn't seem concerned in the slightest that there is a day coming when he will have to answer for how he's lived. Or that the Son of God himself may deny the man in front of the throne and in front of the holy angels as a testimony. We could just say then that this guy is, is not thinking long term at all. He's not thinking on an eternal level. And it's sad that even sometimes when we have come to Christ and we know Christ is eternal and we know our life is in the future, we know that we're mere sojourners here, we can drift back into such temporal thinking, such earthly thinking. This is why we're reminded in the scriptures, particularly Colossians 3, 1 to 4, to not set our minds on things on the earth. In other words, don't promote anything here as if it is the substance and the end and the ultimate. Don't promote this. Promote what is in heaven where Christ is. Essentially, that's a New Testament message to think long term. 
to know that souls matter, nothing else matters. When I was raising my kids, I thought about that all the time. That's the only thing that I have the, the possibility of influencing for eternity are souls. Four of them that were in my home growing up, those little ones. I, I can influence souls for eternity. Everything else I do is a wash. It's either a tool used for that or it does nothing. It's of no eternal value except maybe to satisfy some, some earthly desire in me. The guy's not thinking long-term. And our culture doesn't help us today with even the thought of that. I mean, everybody is just seeming to live for the moment. We're, we're short-term minds, and we're feasting on soundbite appetizers. And I can assure you that if you do that over and over again, it will lead to spiritual malnutrition very quickly. We could say this is, of course, why the church suffers the way that it does in our culture. This guy's only interested in what's going on here on earth. He's only concerned about what he can get out of life now. Not only that, when he asked this question in the context, he obviously views Jesus wrongly because every word out of Jesus' mouth was truth for the sinner, for the soul of the sinner to be refreshed by the water of this oasis of truth coming from the Lord. This guy looks at Jesus as some sort of moral police or legal voice in his family's estate. That's all he is interested in. To him, Jesus isn't a preacher of good news. He's not the bringer of, of news of salvation and forgiveness. He's someone to be used as a legal advantage. And Jesus seems to know that issue. And... Uh, this guy takes advantage of the messages and the constant work of ministry and the constant challenging that came from the Jewish leaders and the constant debating with them about the truth. This guy takes advantage of Jesus' relationship at that level. He knows he's a rabbi. He perhaps assumes Jesus has some in with the higher-ups in Israel and perhaps the upstanding character of Jesus gives him maybe a little extra influence, maybe even in Rome. Maybe there are some contacts in Rome, maybe a way to get into the appellate court. And Jesus could go in there and as a witness to this guy say, hey, he's being treated unfairly by his brother. He's not getting his money. That's all this guy is thinking about when it comes to Jesus. I want the money here that will satisfy and secure me here. And he's utterly missed the eternal message. Jesus is just an official mouthpiece. And so when you think about the fact that he asked this question in the crowd, blurting it out, the fact that he asked it after Jesus had spoken so much on eternal issues tells you what has happened to his heart. His heart is not set on Christ. His treasure is not in the heavenlies and in eternal things. He is all about temporal life. And Jesus, knowing this, distances himself a bit from the man in the crowd. Notice verse 14, but he said to him, man, who appointed me a judge or arbitrator over you? It's interesting. The term man here is just translated from the word, which means that. And some translators have thought this is probably better translated friend or something like that. But, but in the context, it's too soft a term. Friend would be too soft a term. It probably is just something generic or, or somewhat of a business tone. Hey, you've come to me looking for business. I, I, I'm not into business, but I'll treat you like the businessman that you've come in this crowd as. You've said, Rabbi, you know, tell my brother to get down to the business of taking care of me in the family inheritance. Well, if you wanted to come to me for business, let me just say to you, sir, mister, no one appointed me in that position. It's not cold, but nor is Jesus offering sympathy for the guy's earthly concerns. That is not where Jesus is going to go. Jesus was not appointed an appellate court official to decide future financial security because he's about to say that those things are not secure. They're not secure. And it's dangerous to ground yourself in anything other than Christ and eternal things. 
It is dangerous to use what we have here in such a distracted or attached way that we lose sight of the fact that those are tools to, to honor God and glorify God and reach glory with Christ. They are not the substance of our lives. Jesus didn't come to earth to give people justice in earthly disputes. You might think about that when you think about missions and social justice and the message that sort of wafts through the church today. Jesus didn't tell believers that those things were important to them at all. Christian compassion, absolutely normal. James 1, 27. A Christian, a person who comes to Christ, having been given the mercy of God, is compassionate for someone who's hurting or defenseless. That is normal Christian heart, even beyond the image of God in a pagan. But the work of the gospel is the work of the gospel, and it isn't about settling earthly disputes and being sort of an official of earthly justice. Nor did Jesus come to eradicate poverty. He himself in his earthly ministry said to the people around him, you will always have the poor with you. Look, until the kingdom, until a benevolent dictator like Christ is ruling and reigning, there will be needs that go unmet. Should we try to meet those needs? Absolutely. But the work of the gospel is not that. Ministering to souls is not that. Jesus did not come to solve world hunger, obviously, or he would have. His next coming will. He will solve it all as king of kings. What did he come for? Well, this guy didn't realize it. He would totally missed the fact that Jesus came to call people out of their love of temporal things, out of their attachment to earthly securities, out of their idolatry over those things. Jesus came to help us see that there is a heavenly judge to whom we will give an answer for all of it. And there's nothing here on earth that will make any difference on that day. Nothing. I love how Leon Morris said it. He said, Jesus came to bring men to God, not to bring property to men. End quote. So true. This guy loves money and his heart is exposed. Why does he love money? Because he doesn't love Christ. When you love Christ, you can't love money. When you love money, you can't love Christ. Jesus said that very thing, Matthew 6, 24. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will hold to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and material gain. You cannot do that. Greed and truth don't mix, Jesus says to this guy outright. Secondly, just for sort of jotting it down and getting our thoughts on paper, secondly, security in things is an illusion, Jesus says. Security in things is an illusion, verse 15. He said to them, beware and be on your guard against every form of greed. For not even when one has an abundance does his life consist in his possessions. Jesus said to them, look out. Beware. It's a great word. Jesus uses it here to mean see these things with utter clarity. Pay attention and clearly grasp. That's the term. And then he says, and be on guard against. That is the word for to be, to, to be a watchman, to keep under careful watch all the time, to make it your duty to preserve and protect the right perspective. Watch out. Look out. This guy wasn't looking out. He wasn't thinking about where his heart might go when it came to earthly things. He wasn't guarding his life as to where he laid his security. Look at James chapter 1 for just a moment. James chapter 1. You remember the first chapter of James is about the whole matter of testing and trials and how they produce in us endurance as believers, how they test your faith and one who endures is a true believer. Right in the middle of that discussion, there must have been some who assumed that if you had had earthly security in your wealth or your possessions or your heritage or your inheritance, if you tended to put your 
trust in those things, and it was all taken away from you, the assumption was that you'd be devastated. You'd be absolutely devastated with, without a huge bank account or earthly security to hold on to. And so James here says in chapter 1, right in the context of tests and difficulties, notice he says in James 1, verse 9, but the brother of humble circumstances is to glory in his high position. So someone who doesn't have enough that, that would seem like would secure them in this life, someone who has a tight budget, someone who doesn't have material gain or can't gain it, someone for whom everything's been taken away, everything everyone trusts in in the earth for certainty and security, the brother who doesn't have it, James says, is to glory in that humiliating circumstance, to glory in the bringing low of his life. Why? Because those things don't satisfy. And if you had trusted in them, when they get taken away, you get weaned off of them. And that's a good thing. You get weaned off of them. You say, oh, brother, listen, I can have material things and I can I cannot trust in them. I'll trust in Christ. We'll see. We'll see because a circumstance might come where you don't have the certainty you once had. Then what happens? James says it tests you. And so he says, but the brother of those humble circumstances should glory in that humiliation because like flowering grass, all that stuff passes away. And then he says to someone who has things, notice verse 10, the rich man is to glory in his humiliation because like flowering grass, rather, he will pass away. So the brother of humble circumstances glories in the high position of it, the high spiritual growth that happens when you don't trust in it, and the rich man glories in that which happens when, it's, when he's brought low and doesn't have it. You shouldn't trust in it anyway. I love this. He's basically saying to someone who doesn't have, don't trust in it. There's no certainty. To someone who has it, don't rest in it. There's no certainty. It's here today, gone tomorrow. Back to Luke's gospel then. This is what Jesus is saying here. Look, beware. Watch your heart. See these things with clarity. You young people, stop looking to the future in, in our culture as if you're going to secure a future and in, all that is certain. Because it isn't. Security in things is an illusion. Fame is an illusion. Popularity is an illusion. Money is an illusion as to its ultimate security. This is Jesus' point. Look out. See it with clarity. Clearly grasp it. Be a watchman. Make it your duty to protect the right perspective or your heart will go there. Man, it's so tempting Jesus says, be on guard against, what does he say? Every form of greed. By the way, the word probably, it, it, we could understand it better if we just make it the way it typically is translated, coveting, covetousness. The word simply boiled down means to covet. And in this context, we know now what it means. I want more. And I want what I think will fulfill my earthly life. And I want what I think will bring me security and certainty. And when I look around me and I survey the culture, and, and of course, ours is the most wealthy culture that's ever been on the planet that we know of prior, uh, after ancient times. This is it. I mean, this culture has been exceedingly wealthy, but it's like looking around at all those things and saying, I want what I see that others have and what I have concluded gives them happiness and freedom that they seem to enjoy. And so I want that. That's this term. To covet every desire of your heart for earthly fulfillment, earthly security, or seeing what others have and assuming that they are free from trouble, I want that. And typically it involves something of value in the culture, property, material gain, even riches, something to spend anytime you want, something to mask the heartache that comes when you don't have resources. I want those things. 
Jesus knew that about this guy. He comes into the crowd. He hasn't listened about fearing God. He hasn't listened about the sobriety of that day when you're going to come and your soul's going to be at stake. He hasn't thought about any of that. All he is thinking about is how can I get this official rabbi who seems to have some influence both in Israel and in Rome to, to come with me to court and yank on my brother's neck because I'm being, I'm being mistreated and I don't have what I want. And Jesus just uses the guy as an illustration to say, let me tell you what. Your heart is trusting in the wrong thing. You need to be satisfied with the unfolding providence of God in your life. You know, it's like Proverbs 30 when Acker prayed that great prayer. Lord, give me my portion. I'll tell you why you need to just give me my portion, Lord, because I'm testing my own heart, and I know something about my heart. If you give me too much, I am going to glory in it, rejoice in it. I'm going to sit back and forget you. I will. Do you ever think that about your heart? Or are you the defender of your heart? No, no, Lord could give me a lot of resources, and I would use it for him. I know I would, God. Just test me with a million bucks. Just (laughs) test me. You know you're laughing because you're thinking, I've thought that very thing. What are you doing with the 10 in your pocket or the 100 in your bank account? Because that's what God wants to know. Where is your heart? You need to have a healthy distrust of it. And that's essentially what he's saying here. A healthy distrust that says, no, no. Like Agur, don't give me too much, Lord, because I will forget you. I know my heart. I know where I go. I like to mask my trouble with resources I could spend on a dime anytime I want, and I will not deal with what goes on in my heart. I like the earth too much. And don't give me too little. Don't leave me without the resources at a moment when my faith, you know, is, my, is paper thin. Don't do that, Lord, because that's like snuffing out a smoldering wick. Don't do that. I know you won't break a bruised reed, so don't give me so little that I might steal and profane your name. I could be easily become a criminal. It's never God's fault. God gives us in his providence what he wants to give us. Our problem is where our heart is at the moment. Is it on Christ? Or is it on certainties here which have no certainty to them? It's an illusion. Man, I think about all the younger generation growing up in church and what they think they are that's out ahead of them in the culture. It's nothing certain. It won't save your soul. And I think about all these parents that throw their kids up into these fame and fortune career paths. I'm thinking, you have no idea what you've just done. You might as well at times feed your kids to the wolves. Do they have a heart that can handle that? How do you know at 15, 16? Oh, I just want them to be important. I just want them to be significant. No, you want them saved, redeemed. Listen to J.C. Ryle. He says, it would be vain to decide positively which is the most common sin in the world, but it'd be safe to say that there is none at any rate to which the heart is more prone than covetousness. It was this sin which helped to cast down the angels who fell. They were not content with their first estate. They coveted something better. It was this sin which helped to drive Adam and Eve out of paradise and bring death into the world. Our first parents were not satisfied with the things which God gave them in Eden. They coveted, and so they fell. It is a sin which ever since the fall, has been the fertile cause of misery and unhappiness upon earth. Wars, quarrels, strifes, divisions, envyings, disputes, jealousies, hatreds of all sorts, both public and private, may nearly all be traced up to this fountainhead. End quote. Now, beloved, the Bible does not forbid having whatever God gives. It doesn't forbid it at all. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 18, God is the one that gives the power to make wealth, and he does give people minds and backs and strong labor and and discipline, and he gives you the ability to discipline your life and, and bring fruit out of it, even if the earth is cursed and brings forth a lot less than it will in the kingdom. Even if that's the case, there, there are great 
gifts by God, and he richly supplies us with all things to enjoy, 1 Timothy 6, 17. Lots of people in God's family have a lot of earthly goods. And lots of people in God's family in ancient times had a tremendous amount of wealth. Job was extremely wealthy. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Solomon, of course. Even in the New Testament, the wealthy man who took Jesus' body and gave the grave into which he was placed. Joseph Arimathea was wealthy, according to Matthew 27, 57. Scripture does not forbid earthly gain. What Scripture forbids, as you know, is the love of it. The love of it. 1 Timothy 6.10, the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. And some, Paul says, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith. There it is right there. Think of the, think of the connection that Paul just made. By longing for it, have wandered away, what? From the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. And so he'll later say in 1 Timothy 6, verse 17, instruct those who have gain, instruct those who have a lot of earthly things. In this present world, instruct them not to be conceited or to fix their hope on what? On the uncertainty of it. Beloved, simply stated, to love what is here on the earth, to find security in what is here on the earth is idolatry. It's to worship an idol. It's to fix your hope on something that has absolutely no power to secure your future. I love how the Proverbs put it, Proverbs 23, 4 and 5, do not weary yourself to gain these things. Cease from your consideration of it. When you set your eyes on it, it's gone. For wealth certainly makes itself wings like an eagle that flies toward the heavens. Boy, isn't that true when it comes out of your bank account every month? I mean, it just flows, doesn't it? The wealthiest king over the wealthiest empire on earth at around the mid-900s BC said this, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves abundance with its income, end quote. Solomon, Ecclesiastes 5.10. For love of money, Judas betrayed the Lord Jesus Christ and his soul suffers in hell for all eternity. It was coveting that led in the early church, Ananias and Sapphira, to lie to the Holy Spirit, Acts 5. Love of money, as Agur said, can cause you to forget your God. And so you ought to pray for just your portion. Jesus said in Mark 4, 19, that riches, here they are, they're deceitful. It will deceive you. Back to Luke 12, verse 15, notice what Jesus says. For not even when one has an abundance does his life consist in his possessions. There it is. What you have is not the reality. What you have on earth is not the reality. What you possess materially, what you have on the outside, what the earth thinks of you, what people think of you, how secure you feel, what people look at and envy, what they'd like to have that you have, <clears throat> your nice piece of property or multiple properties, the homes, the, the vehicles, the resources, the college educations you've paid for, the savings that you've stored up, the IRA accounts that you have, the earthly goods that you have. It doesn't matter how generous you are with other people with those earthly goods. That's a wonderful thing. Be generous. Wonderful. That isn't the point here. The point isn't that it's evil to have it or even to be generous with it. You should be generous with it. The point here is, does your heart imagine that it's the substance of your life? Does your heart trust in, give itself over to the disposal of, settle itself in these things as if they are the measure of your life before a holy God? Because Jesus says not even when a person has an abundance does his life consist in his possessions. You say, why? 
Jesus answers this marvelously with a parable. He answers it marvelously with a parable. Verse 16, he told him a parable saying, the land of a rich man was very productive. And he began reasoning to himself, saying, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. I mean, he looked at what was happening. The gain was incredible. The profits were amazing. It was rolling in. And he needed to secure it. By the way, there, it is true that in a parable, there's really one driving point with some details that are familiar, but the details aren't really the essence of a parable. It's just the main driving point. I, however, find it fascinating that the man reasoned to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. It seems to me that when your business is profitable or your gain is noticeable, you do start considering those things and how to store them and protect them. I have lots of friends who have lots of resources. Not that I make friends with lots of people who have lots of resources. It just so happens that some of them are very good in business or whatever. But I look at their life and we, we chuckle together about it. These are godly people, but we chuckle together about how difficult it is to secure what you have and protect what you have from dishonest people. I mean, you want that million dollars to see what you would do with it? I guarantee you'll spend a good 20 hours of your 24-hour day trying to find a place to store it and secure it and make sure that you're a good steward of it. That's what you'll do a lot of time. And that's what this guy did in the parable. And then he, he planned it out. This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I'm going to store all my grain and my goods. I, I can do this. I have the resources. I'm going to find a place to secure it. Now, he's coming to a point. He's not merely securing it. There's nothing wrong with having things and putting it on a nice, secure piece of property and all those things that God gives you richly to enjoy. But he has a point he's coming to. Why is he building bigger barns? Notice, after he's built the bigger ones, he will say to his soul, verse 19, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. The, here's a free translation for you. I am set for life. I got this. Soul, take your ease. Eat, drink, and be merry. Now think about what is missing in that verse. Think about what's missing. Or just look at it from the standpoint of what is reflected in the earthy things. I'm going to say to my soul. So he's talking to himself. He's not talking to God. You have many goods. That's an earthly thing. And you've stored them up for many years to come. Those are earthly measurements, years. He hasn't thinking about eternity. He's thinking about earthly years. Still, very earthly perspective. And then he says, not... Okay, think about eternity. What can you use these things for for eternity? How many people can you influence for the gospel? What about treasure for God? No, he, he's talking to himself, looks at his barns, sees what he has, and says to himself, take it easy. Sit back and relax. And do what will fulfill your earthly life for as long as your earthly life lasts. Ease Eating, drinking, satisfaction, happiness, fulfillment in all that is temporal. What's missing from verse 19 is anything about the eternality of his soul. He's talking to himself as a person. He knows he's a soul. He knows he's a living being. There is in him that framework of conscience which has the foreboding sense that there's a God who created him, but he has ignored all of that and found his certainty in all that is right in front of him and all that he's earned and all that he's going to use to make himself satisfied right here. Verse 20, notice who speaks next. But God said to him, I love that, your creator who, who's missing from verse 19. You haven't even thought about him. Oh, oh, him. Oh, that, that's right. I built up a lot of barns. I'm living off of it. I'm ease, drink, and happy and enjoying life. But God said to him, you fool. This very night, your soul is required of you. What, what's that referring to? 
It's over. You know those years to come that you set everything up for? You're not going to use them. You're not going to use any of this stuff. Because God decides your days. God numbers your days. Before there was even one of them, Psalm 139 says he's ordained every single one of them. Later, Jesus is going to say, which of you, by worrying about all these things, can add a single cubit to your life? That's right. God is sovereign over your days. It's an illusion to find certainty here when you could take a step out of the aisle and your last breath happens because God has ordained your number of days. That's it. Just because you have things and build barns to store them in and are enjoying the the fruit of it doesn't mean that there's any certainty in that that you're going to continue on. In fact, Solomon lamented that you build up all these riches and you use it and there's no fulfillment in it. It's just chasing the wind and then your kids come along and squander it. Are you going to be around to see what your kids do with your inheritance? I don't think so. A lot of parents are saying, I'm spending my inheritance because I don't want my kids to mess with it. They're just going to blow it on something I wouldn't blow it on. Listen, beloved, Jesus is making such a crucial point here. Nothing matters but what is eternal. That's why your life doesn't consist in your possessions. It doesn't. It doesn't consist in your reputation on earth among men. It doesn't consist in whether or not you are educated or not and could supply your family with those things or not. It doesn't consist in your fame. It doesn't consist in how well you get along in the culture. It doesn't consist in any of those things. There is no security in anything on earth. Why? Because one night, maybe this night, you're going to stand before your creator and your soul will be asked of you. What will you then give? What will you offer when all you've done is said to your soul without God in the picture, I'm good. I'm set. In fact, I'm going to maximize my time here and be utterly fulfilled on earth. No wonder God says, what a fool. And now who will own what you've prepared? Okay, everything you've prepared and you've sat around and tried to enjoy, tonight you're going to be answering for your soul while someone else is going to have what you possess. All that work, all that securing, all that worry, all that anxiety, all that grinding. And he's saying it right to this guy in the crowd who's saying, my brother isn't giving me what I deserve. You fool. Tonight, your soul will be required of you. He's not saying that to the man, although it could have been true. We don't know. But in the parable, he's saying it to the wealthy guy. Verse 21, so is the man who stores up treasure for himself, and look at this, is not rich toward God. He's not rich toward God. We could say the soul will not be satisfied with earthly treasures, and since life is a vapor and then comes judgment, right? James chapter 4, don't you do like this guy and say, oh, I'm going to build all these big barns and plan to go here and plan to go there. I'm going to do business over here and make a profit. James 4 says, don't, don't do that without first saying, if the Lord wills. So that's how you're first rich toward God, is you're rich in faith, rich in humility, which acknowledges to God, hey, if you will, Lord, if you will it, if your providence unfolds like that, I accept it. Good season, down season. Lots to enjoy, very little to enjoy. Whatever the season, life is a vapor, and it is arrogance to imagine, I'm going to go here and do this and that, when you are the one that orders all these things. I should say, if you will. I'll go and do this and that. If you will, I'll make these resources. If you will it, Lord, I'll be able to secure them. And I don't put any trust in them. I might not be able to secure them. I'll do my best as a good steward. You do with it as you please, Lord, because it is your plan, your providence. What does it mean to not be rich toward God? It means to not be rich in grace. To not be rich in the things of grace, but to be rich in the things of the culture To not be rich in faith that believes God and trusts God regardless of whether you have it or don't. That is what it means to not be rich toward God. To not have a robust faith and a trust in Him. And I'll tell you what else it means. It means to not be rich in good works. You know, the more you have, the more you have to hover over the good stewardship of it. And that makes it very difficult to think about people 
Sometimes you become so good at business that you forget that life isn't about numbers on spreadsheets. It's actually about people and the stewardship of a soul. The souls in front of you, your kids, your wife, your grandkids, your disciples, people in the church. Being rich toward God means being rich in discipleship, rich in thoughts about souls. When you meet Christ, the only thing that will matter is how you've influenced souls for the kingdom. That's it. That's it. Some of you are hoping that it will have a little bit of added personal reputation on there, a little bit of added, hey, I spent this, and I have buildings over there in such and such state with my name on them at a university because I gave this and that. Or I have a hospital brick that has my name in it because I donated that, and all of which are wonderful things, unless you're putting your security in them, unless you think that that's going to gain you something. It isn't. It's only robbing you of being rich toward God here and now with all those things as they become useful to him. Again, J.C. Ryle. Never till the man is applied to Jesus Christ and brought him gold tried in the fire is he said to be rich toward God. Never till he has a house not made with hands eternal in the heavens. Never till he has a name inscribed in the book of life and is an heir of God and a joint heir with Christ. Such a man is truly rich. His treasure is incorruptible. His bank never breaks. His inheritance never fades away. Man can't deprive him of it. Death cannot snatch it out of his hands. All things are his already. Life, death, things present, things to come, 1 Corinthians 3.23. And best of all, what he has now is nothing to what he will have hereafter, end quote. That's why in verse 31, Jesus says, seek his kingdom and these things will be added to you. Be rich in the things of Christ. Let us pray confidently, confidently that we will be satisfied with the unfolding providence of God over our earthly affairs. And let us pray that we think God's wisdom after him, that however he arranges our life is best. If we have a little, we should pray that we're sure it would not be good for us to have more. Listen, if you have been given what you've been given, then it's not a season for you to have more or God would give it to you. It's not best. And if the things you have are taken away and you should be satisfied, that in that state you can be happy in Christ. Happy and fulfilled are those who believe and are persuaded that whatever is, is best. That's what it means to be rich toward God. And only the fool finds certainty in the illusion of earthly things. It's an illusion. Where is your heart? <laughs> At the end of this entire discussion, Jesus will say that very thing, verse 34, which we'll have to talk about in a couple of weeks. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What do you talk about? What are you most passionate about? Where do you spend your time and energy and your resources? Are they on eternal purposes and souls and influence for the kingdom? Sure, enjoy the things God's given you. That's a wonderful thing. Marvelous thing. But really go before God and ask yourself, Lord, do I trust in those things? Am I actually one of those who brags about going here and doing this and that, but I've never said, if you will, Lord? Am I the kind of person who, when it's taken away from me, I don't glory in the weaning of myself from myself? Am I the kind of person who has less than I perhaps would like to have on a monthly basis or whatever, and I, I grind over that because I, I want riches so I can trust in the earthly things. I would sure like it, covet it. Beware. Be on guard against where your heart is at. Have a, have a healthy distrust of where your heart will go. Give us our portion, O oh God, and then we'll be Christ-centered. Then we'll be Christ-centered. Then we won't be the kind of person that praises Christ one week and denounces him the next week as they did in that very season when he was one week from his death. You won't be the kind of person who vacillates. 
We don't ground ourselves here. We seek the things above where Christ is, where our life is hidden. Everything else we have, we just use it for spiritual influence on eternal souls. Amen? Lord, we thank you for this great section that the Lord lays out, how he uses this man as an illustration, and oh, how we could be named in this text. How many times have we popped off with such a similar question? Lord, give me this. Lord, tell these magistrates to do this. Lord, tell my boss to give me this. Tell my family to do this. Give me what will make me happy here and now. Lord, the encouragement, the admonishment, the rebuke is to us. We pine away for things we don't need, and if we did need them, you'd give them, for you supply all of our needs. And even when things are in short supply that, that are basic to life, you know what we need before we even ask. We don't need to covet it's such a sin that brings misery brings all kinds of trouble. Lord, may we repent of coveting of any kind. Just thank you and be grateful. Work hard. Enjoy the fruit and the blessing of all that you do give in whatever season you give it. But humble ourselves in whatever you bring. For it is for your honor and your glory that we, that we live. It's for souls that we serve and minister on your behalf. Help us to remember that our life does not consist in our reputation or anything earthly that we own, any of our possessions. But it's about meeting you and having things well with our soul because we didn't trust in things here. Help us identify those ways that we do and to run from them. And as we head into this next week, May we be mindful of all the ways Jesus exposed hearts as he went to the cross to save eternal souls and to give eternal life. And ultimately how he found no certainty in the things of the earth, the comforts he should have had and deserved, and took none of them. For he made himself poor in every way, not as though he never had any food on earth, but he made himself spiritually poor that we might become eternally and spiritually rich. Our certainty lies with you, O oh God, our Savior in Christ. May that reflect itself in our lives, in how we live, what our greatest passions are. And we ask it for your glory's sake. Amen.